invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. There are, there are essentially four scenes in the chapter before us. Uh, Mary Magdalene and the disciples inspect the tomb. That is the first scene. And then Christ appears to Mary Magdalene. That is the second scene. And then Christ appears to the disciples. Thomas is absent. That is the third scene. And then Christ appears to the disciples with Thomas present. That is the final scene. And these four together constitute what John has written for us in the 20th chapter of the book entitled by his name. And so I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, 
was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What are we, what are we meant to take from all of that? That's a good question. Uh, What is it? What is it that John, uh, the disciple John, the apostle John, uh, what is it that he, uh, by the inspiration of God's Spirit, would convey to us uh, in these verses, in this narrative? There are Numerous truths. Let me state that at the outset. There are numerous truths, uh, numerous lessons, precious truths, precious lessons in these verses. We don't have time to look at them all today, but there are nine that I want to emphasize. Uh, Nine key truths that John, and take note of this, by the inspiration of God's Spirit, Uh, would impart to us. And you can take your bulletin if you haven't taken it already. And you can open it up and you'll see there the title, Sermon Notes. And there's the title for today's sermon, He Must Rise from the Dead. That statement taken from verse 9. There's the text we have just read, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 29. And there are nine subjects, nine themes that we find in these verses, and I want us to focus on a truth or a lesson that emerges from each of those subjects. That's how we're going to approach the text this morning. We want want to know what is it the Holy Spirit uh, wants to get across to us. And and we're not going to exhaust the verses, but I I think we'll get the main intent of the passage If we focus on these nine themes pointing to nine truths. And so the first theme, it's written there for you, has to do with the devoted follower. What lesson do we learn from the devoted follower? Simply this. Love fuels devotion. When I mention, when I speak of the devoted follower, I am referring, of course, to Mary, Mary Magdalene. Look with me of what we read concerning her in the very first verse. Now, on the first day of the week, Christ is dead and buried. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. We know very little about this woman. But you read each of the gospel narratives And the point that is made repeatedly is this. Mary is at the cross and Mary is at the tomb. Why? It's a great question. 
Why? Well, we learn, we only learn one other detail concerning this woman. We find it in Mark chapter 16. And the detail is extremely important. It is as follows. The Lord Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. In other words, uh, the Lord Jesus saved this woman. Uh, The Lord Jesus transformed this woman. She had an awareness. She had an appreciation of what she was and of what she had now become. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus for what he had done in her. And her gratitude fuels love. And her love fuels devotion. And this devotion is seen as Mary is at the cross as near as she can possibly be to her Savior. And Mary is at the tomb as close as she can possibly be to her Savior. Friends, please understand this. Brothers and sisters, please get this. Love fuels devotion. Where there is love, there is zeal. Where there is love, there is diligence. Where there is love, there is heartfelt devotion. Paul states it as follows. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I wonder if that is true of me this morning. I wonder if that is true of you. Can I honestly say the love of Christ controls me? Or do I have to say the love of fun controls me? Uh, The love of fame controls me. The love of fortune controls me. What is it? What is it that makes us tick? What is it that compels us to act? Is it this keen, acute awareness of the love of Christ as poured out at Calvary's cross that consumes us and stirs in us this love that is expressed in this kind of devotion, this kind of commitment? I find myself asking myself, how is it possible to serve so little? How is it possible to give so little? How is it possible to witness so little? How is it possible to pray so little in the face of love so great? I find myself asking myself that question. Oh, love fuels devotion. Oh, for a renewed sense of what Mary sensed. Oh, for an understanding of what Paul so succinctly declares. Oh, the love of Christ controls us. It is the principle from which we act. It is the reality that shapes our thoughts. 
shapes our feelings, our emotions, our desires, that shapes our words, that shapes our actions. That's the first lesson. That's a lesson that clearly emerges from the devoted follower. The second lesson emerges from the second theme, the empty tomb. And the lesson is simply this, quite obvious, but let me state it for you anyway. Christ is risen from the dead. That's a truth that we are obviously meant to grasp from these verses. The tomb is empty. Mary goes to the tomb. She sees in verse 1 that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That's our first indicator. She runs to tell Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loves. That's John, the author of this book. They run to the tomb. They enter the tomb. What do they behold? The cloths, the linen cloths lying there. The linen cloth that had covered his face folded in the, in, in the corner. And what, what is this meant to, intended to convey? Uh, simply this, Jesus is not there. Uh, Jesus died bodily. Jesus was buried bodily, and Jesus has risen from the dead bodily. I hope I'm not going to distract anyone by mentioning this this morning, but I do have a purpose in it. Uh, I hope this won't prove to be a distraction. Uh, There is a movie in the theater right now called uh, Avatar. And I mention it simply because I think it it is broken all the box office records, and it is probably about to win a bunch of uh, awards. I haven't, I haven't seen it. All I know is that it's about a bunch of, of blue people. But the point is this. I guess they're not people. They're extraterrestrials or something. The point is this. The, the, uh, the maker, the producer of that, uh, of that movie, his name is James Cameron. He's made a number of movies and documentaries. In 2007, he made a documentary entitled the lost tomb of Jesus. Did you know that? The lost tomb of Jesus. And I, I clipped a newspaper article back a, a couple of years ago, and I've kept it. And in this, this newspaper article, it, it, we read the following. Uh, a Hollywood director yesterday unveiled, and this is James Cameron, uh, what he claimed to be the most astounding archaeological discovery of all time. The coffin of Jesus. James Cameron was promoting a new documentary claiming that not only did the resurrection and ascension of Christ never occur, but also that Jesus had a son. Cameron used a New York press conference to show two limestone boxes that he said had once held the bodies of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and their son Judah. The lost tomb of Jesus argues that the plain limestone box known as an ossuary was one of ten discovered in a tomb stumbled on by builders in Jerusalem in 1980. Now, that documentary and Avatar actually have something in common. They're both fantasy. They have absolutely nothing to do with reality. Christ is risen from the dead. To find a box and claim that it is the lost tomb of Jesus is nothing short of absurd. It'd be like someone 2,000 years from now finding a tombstone somewhere in the United States with the name Smith on it and saying, that's got to be Keith's. That's how absurd this is. Christ is risen from the dead. There is no need for me to mount a defense for Christ's resurrection this morning. Others have done that admirably, convincingly, and thoroughly. But let me leave you with just one unassailable proof 
of the resurrection of Christ. It is simply this, the disciples themselves. These two, for example, Peter and John. The disciples are an unsaleable proof of the resurrection of Christ. Why do I say that? I say that firstly because their amazing transformation testifies to the risen Christ. How do we explain Peter? One moment, he's unwilling to claim he even knows Christ in the face, when faced with one solitary slave girl. The next moment, that same man is proclaiming Christ, Christ raised from the dead before a hostile crowd. How do we explain that radical transformation? We can't explain it apart from Christ's resurrection. And a second reason I say I affirm that the disciples are an unsaleable proof of Christ's resurrection is not merely their transformed lives, the amazing transformation that occurred in them, but because of their unwavering proclamation of the gospel. And namely, their unwavering proclamation of Christ raised from the dead. Please remember, according to church tradition, 11 of the 12 disciples are martyred. The one disciple who isn't martyred is John, but he is exiled for much of his adult life. Here's my question. What would make these men fabricate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and then all of them willingly die for something they knew was untrue? That makes no sense at all. Surely, let's be reasonable, at least one of them when facing the executioner's sword or when facing crucifixion upon a cross or facing one of the other means by which they died, certainly at least one of them would have said, you're right, it's all a hoax. The game is up. He really didn't rise from the dead. Why were these men prepared to die such brutal deaths for something that they knew would have been or was untrue? You see, we cannot explain that amazing transformation. And we cannot explain that uncompromising, unwavering proclamation of Christ's resurrection apart from this glorious truth. Christ has risen from the dead. That's the second truth or lesson we're intended to get from these verses. The third arises from the confused disciples in verse 9. The lesson is this. Spiritual understanding is a gift. Of God's grace. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. Believed what? That Jesus was no longer there. But it hasn't dawned on him yet the truth of the resurrection. We learn that in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture. That he must rise from the dead. How is that possible? Uh, These men are Jews. These men know the Old Testament scriptures. These men have walked, lived, communed with Christ for probably three years. They have heard the Lord Jesus state on numerous occasions that he must go to Jerusalem and die and that he must rise from the dead. How is it that there is such a disconnect? How is it that the penny hasn't dropped? How is it that they don't get it? What it is that the scripture so clearly affirms concerning Christ's resurrection The points as to this undeniable truth that spiritual understanding is in reality a gift 
of God's grace. When we turn, for example, to Luke's gospel account, chapter 24, we have a parallel account of what we read later here in John chapter 20 when the Lord Jesus first appears to the disciples. And in that account in Luke 24, we read the following. Then he, that is the Lord Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so their, their, their understanding of what, of what the Old Testament prophesied, their understanding, their ability to connect the dots between what they now saw, this empty tomb, and what had been prophesied, was completely, totally dependent upon the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. Now, do we appreciate that? Invaluable lesson there, brothers and sisters. Uh, you can learn... And by all means, go for it if if you're so interested. You can learn Hebrew and Greek. You can read Calvin's commentaries. And you can master Strong's systematic theology and still be spiritually ignorant. I'm all for all of those things. Don't, Don't misunderstand or misapply what I'm saying. I think all of those things are extremely useful tools. And they they are means by which the Spirit of God works in us. But in the final analysis, when it is all said and done, spiritual understanding is a gift of God's grace. Here's what I find myself asking myself. Why don't I pray more for that? Why isn't that number one on my prayer list? Lord bless me. Lord, give me health and wealth and everything else my heart desires. No, as Paul prays, give us a spirit, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Oh, I fear, and I know it to be true, that this book right here is a closed book to far too many professing Christians. And is it possible Is it possible that this is a closed book because we have never begged of God that illumination, that spiritual understanding, which is ultimately a gift of his grace? That's the third lesson. Third lesson emerging from the text. The fourth is this. It's taken from the fulfilled scripture still in verse nine. For as yet they did not understand the scripture. That he must rise from the dead. What do we learn here? What do we glean from that statement? That he must rise from the dead. Christ's resurrection is absolutely necessary. Uh, What particular, what specific scripture does John have in mind here? We don't know for certain, but one, one most interesting text is found in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. And I refer to this text, this scripture, because Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 2. And Paul quotes it in Acts chapter 13. It states as follows. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. God wouldn't allow it. God wouldn't permit it. According to Scripture, God must rise from the dead. Christ must rise from the dead. According to God's plan, Christ must rise from the dead. Why must He rise? 
Why was it impossible for him to stay in the tomb? Three reasons. The first is this. The perfection of his nature. We read these verses corporately earlier. Let me read a portion again for you from Acts 2. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? The perfection of his nature. Secondly, the vindication of his name. Romans 1, 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And thirdly, the salvation of his people. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The perfection of his nature or his person, the vindication of his name and the salvation of his people. He must rise from the dead. An absolute necessity. The fifth lesson. If you're following along in the bulletin, it arises from the distraught follower, Mary Magdalene, of course. And what do we learn here? What is the lesson? Simply this. Sorrow, our sorrow, is often misplaced. That's going to require some explanation. Bear with me. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Her reason, she said to them, verse 13, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. What is the cause of this woman's grief? What is the reason behind her sorrow? That Christ's body is gone. Christ's body is no longer where it was. Think about it for a moment. That which was the greatest cause of her sorrow should in reality have been the greatest cause of joy. The body's not there. And she's overcome with grief. The body is gone and she stands there weeping. What she perceives to be the end game, what she perceives to be the unthinkable, the body is gone, should in actual fact have been the greatest cause of joy and celebration. What is it Mary lacks at this moment? She lacks perspective. She fails to wait for the unfolding of God's purposes. Oh, what an invaluable lesson that is, brothers and sisters. You think back to the Old Testament and you think back to Jacob. And you think back to that old man as he sits outside of his tent and having sojourned for many years and everything that he has been through. His sons have just descended down into Egypt because of the famine. The famine is harsh in the land. And so he sends his sons to Egypt to get food. They get food. Who do they discover there? Joseph. And Joseph keeps Simeon as a captive and he tells his brothers to go back. They don't know who he is. They tell his brothers to go back and and tell their father that they dare not come to Egypt again unless they are prepared to bring their younger brother Benjamin with them. 
So they make that journey back and they share with Jacob what's happened. Yes, we've got lots of food, but Simeon's back there languishing in a prison cell. And guess what? When this food runs out, we dare not go back there without Benjamin. And do you remember Jacob's response? All this is against me. Really? Perspective. What doesn't he know? Joseph is alive. Joseph is going to save countless numbers of people through the distribution of that food. Moses is going to invite, uh, Joseph is going to invite his father Jacob, his brothers to the land of Egypt where he is going to care for them and provide for them. Those brothers are going to bloom, they're going to blossom, they're going to grow into a nation. That nation is going to leave Egypt, return to the promised land, the land of Canaan. From that nation will arise kings and kingdoms. From that nation will arise the Savior of the world prefigured in Joseph. All these things are against me. Oh, really? What he perceived to be the greatest cause of grief and sorrow should in reality have been the greatest source of joy. I submit to you, friends, that more often perhaps than we realize, and certainly more often than we perhaps care to acknowledge, those things that befall us in life, while yes, causes of of grief, I'm not minimizing or denying that, causes of perplexity and confusion, I'm not minimizing or denying that, But I am affirming unequivocally this, that these things, when we wait, when we wait for the full revelation of God's purposes in them, turn out to be the greatest cause of joy. We learn that here. We learn that from Mary. You just picture her there by the tomb. Our heart goes out for her, doesn't it? She's all upset. Her world is over. Why? The body's not there. What doesn't she understand? What that means. That Christ has risen from the dead. The sixth truth emerges from that sixth theme. The changed relationship. Follow along as I begin reading again in verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus Jesus said to her, whom, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The changed relationship. What do we learn? Simply this. We have a glorified Savior. Mary, when it dawns upon her, when she is awakened to the fact that she is, she is in the presence of the Lord Jesus, what is her impulsive reaction? To cling to Christ. Christ gently rebukes her right there in verse 17. Do not cling to me. Why? 
I have not yet ascended to the Father. The Lord Jesus appears to be to be correcting a perception on Mary's part. He seems to be seems to be setting her straight. There is on Mary's part. There is this. this, this, this there seems to be this perception in her thinking that the Lord Jesus is risen from the dead. Fantastic. Everything will continue as it was before. He's here. Everything will go back to just the way it was before. And she, she, she is, she's focused on his physical appearance. She's focused on the bodily, yes, resurrection of the Lord. And as far as Mary is concerned, he's back. This is as good as it gets. And the Lord Jesus gently, meekly rebukes her. Stop clinging to me. Why? For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Mary, our relationship will never be what it was. Our relationship is actually going to be better. You now have a heavenly Savior, Mary. And Mary, grasp this, understand it, get it. A heavenly Savior, a glorified Savior, an exalted Savior is far greater than an earthly friend. This is the first step in Christ's exaltation, is it not? We sang it this morning. We declared it from his word. Christ is raised from the dead. That is the first step in his exaltation. But that is not the end. The second step in Christ's exaltation is his ascension to heaven where he is glorified. And the father answers his prayer request for that acquired glory that is his by virtue of what he has accomplished at the cross and for that eternal glory which is his by virtue of who he has always been. The father answers that prayer. He ascends to the right hand of the father. That's only the second step. You see, there's a third step in his exaltation. Where Christ now sits at the right hand of God until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And there's a fourth step in Christ's exaltation. It is his triumphant return in glory. So there is a changed relationship. Mary, we're not going back to the way it was before the cross. Mary, we are ushering in an era that supersedes and is far greater than anything you've experienced to this point. Stop clinging to me. Stop focusing on what you think I am. Stop thinking and and, and focusing on that relationship in the way it was. I have not yet ascended to my Father. And when I have ascended to my Father, you will have a glorified Savior and you can cling to me for all your worth. Cling to me. Through the eyes of faith. Cling to me a glorified prophet who will guide you into all truth. A glorified priest who makes eternal intercession on your behalf. And a glorified king who reigns supreme. That's what we learn from the change relationship. That a glorified savior is far better than an earthly friend. The seventh subject, the compassionate word. What do we learn here? We see something, we catch a glimpse of Christ's abounding loving kindness. We actually see it in three instances. First of all, we see it with Mary. Look back with me at verse 15. Mary has already turned. She's seen the Lord Jesus, perhaps because she's overcome with grief. She doesn't recognize him as Christ. And so Jesus says to her in verse 15, notice, please notice his address, woman. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, please notice his address. Mary, Mary, from woman, whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? To simply one word, Mary, the sheep hear his voice. And the sheep know their shepherd. And here we see the Lord Jesus exuding that loving kindness, that compassion, as He interacts with this woman. And with one mere word, the lights go on. The clouds of despair and confusion dissipate. And she realizes in whose presence she stands. His loving kindness. We see it secondly. And what he says next to Mary, verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my to the father. Now, this is marvelous. Pay attention here. But go to go to those scoundrels who betrayed me. Go to those scoundrels who denied me. Go to those scoundrels who abandoned me in my hour of need. No, go to my brother's. That is absolutely marvelous. Go to my brothers, the disciples, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What? Set it in context, folks. What have these disciples just done? Peter's just denied all knowledge of the Lord Jesus. They have just fled in the garden when he's faced with this onslaught of these soldiers, they have denied all knowledge of him. They've abandoned him at the cross. They're now hiding in a locked room. And yet here we see Christ's compassion. Here we see Christ dealing with these disciples with such loving kindness, referring to them as his brothers. And then notice thirdly, as we move into verse 19, a third instance of this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, shame on you. Peace, peace be with you. Oh, the loving kindness of Christ. Oh, the patience of Christ. In these three instances, we see the truth of what the psalmist declares clearly in Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The psalmist adds, he knows, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are, you and me, dust. It is entirely possible that you, this morning, right here, are languishing in your sin, drowning in your perceived unfaithfulness, and wallowing in your unworthiness. I'm not going to stick a band-aid on your spiritual wounds. Guilt is good. Please understand that. Shame is good. Recognizing our sin is good. If And when it drives us back to chapter 19, 
full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. To know that our sins are washed away. To know that the blood and water flowed from his side. The blood sealing our pardon, forgiveness, full and definite and free. And that water cleansing away our sin. Yes, we perceive our unworthiness. Yes, we are broken for our sin. Yes, praise God, we are poor in spirit. Never lose sight of his loving kindness. And never lose sight of this glorious truth. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why not? Because he's already dealt with them at Calvary's cross. Christian, never lose sight of that. Make it your daily delight. Make it your daily meditation. What Christ has done and what we now are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The eighth theme is a divine command, verses 21 through 23. What truth emerges? Simply this. We have a very clear mission. Follow as I read in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Here's the mission. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Begs an obvious question. How? Had the father sent the Lord Jesus, because however the father sent the Lord Jesus is how the Lord Jesus now sends his disciples and by consequence, his church, you and me. How? I think there are four similarities. The first is this. The authority is the same. Christ could declare back in chapter four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And by virtue of this fact that he was sent by the Father, he was sent from God, the Lord Jesus bore the authority of God. Well, just as God sent me with authority, I am now sending you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says the Lord Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations. So we share the same authority. It's similar, secondly, in the fact that we go to the same audience. As he sent me, even so I am sending you. Listen to what Christ says back in chapter 17. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So John the Baptist could declare all the way back in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or the Samaritans could declare in chapter 4, Behold the Savior of the world. Jews and Gentiles The nations, not limited, not restricted to a particular ethnic group, but here for the world, Christ preached to the world. We declare Christ to the nations, the world that is our audience. Notice the third similarity, the means. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit that prefigures. The down payment, if you like, is the first fruits of what is going to happen at Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus, how did he minister? He ministered in the power of the Spirit. John could record, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The fourth similarity is this, the message. It's the same. What did Christ declare? Forgiveness of sins. What do we declare? Verse 23. 
If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. That is what we do when we proclaim the gospel. Did you realize that? When we proclaim the gospel, we declare God's forgiveness and we proclaim God's condemnation. We declare forgiveness of sins to anyone who responds to the gospel in faith and repentance. And we declare uncertain condemnation and judgment to all those who reject the gospel. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The same authority, the same audience, the same means by the Holy Spirit, and the same message, the gospel. And now finally, the last lesson emerging from the believing disciple. Thomas is often referred to as doubting Thomas. He's actually believing Thomas. Let's focus on the good. Yes, he doubted for a little while, and then he most certainly believed, the believing disciple. He's absent when Christ first appears, the first appearance. He's not there. We don't know why, but he, he is, he's absent. The Lord Jesus appears to the disciples after he goes away. The disciples share this in verse 24 with Thomas. What's Thomas' response? He's filled with doubt. Verse uh, 25, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples are together again. Thomas is among them. The Lord Jesus appears in their midst. Peace be with you. What does he say to Thomas? Verse 27, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What is Thomas's response? He doesn't bother stretching out his hand to touch the Lord Jesus. He simply responds, my Lord and my God. There's the lesson. There's the truth. Faith. Faith, friends, is rooted in the person of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus, yes, fully man who died and was buried and rose again. And yet, what is it that gives intrinsic worth to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? It is this very fact that He is Almighty God. The Lord Jesus responds, Have you believed because you have seen? Nothing wrong with that. But He adds, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Those who are believers here right now, uh, we haven't seen, and yet we have believed. How? He tells us in verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This book right here, the Gospel of John, that as we read it and we hear these witnesses and we hear from John himself under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, God grants us that great and precious gift of spiritual understanding, illumination. And we see Christ in his fullness and seeing him through the eyes of faith, we believe. And again, what does the Lord Jesus say of us? Blessed, blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. An appropriate, an appropriate, very appropriate question with which to end this morning is as follows. Do you believe? Have you seen the empty tomb? No. Have you seen the linen cloths? No. Have you seen the Lord Jesus bodily? No. Have you seen the marks, the scars in his hands, in his pierced side? No. And yet you have heard the word of God. May the Spirit of God take that word, give you eyes to see, that you might place your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus, my Lord and my God. Our Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this morning. Many lessons here, many truths, many principles, apply them according to your will. And most specially, we intercede on those here who do not know Christ, who as of yet have never believed in Christ. And we beg of you that this might be the day of salvation. This might be the dawning of a new age, a new era. When they behold the Lord Jesus for who he is, They behold the Lord Jesus, a Savior, dying upon the cross. They behold the Lord Jesus, a risen Savior, glorified at your right hand. And believing, they cry, my Lord and my God. This we ask in his most precious name. Amen.